The Hogs are going to Omaha. Oh, intermission. No, it's halftime. You can actually feel Razorback Stadium shaking underneath our feet right now. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. Arkansas wins the national championship. What I say when it comes to this basketball team is the law. Absolutely and without discussion. I have been trying to get you together with Ty. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascists. Throw some ground ball. It's more democratic. This is the Halftime Podcast, presented by Jeff's Clubhouse. It's not the start time that a head coach would have asked for. It's not the start time that any of the uh, administrators would have put forward. Certainly not the start time that any of the fans would have chosen uh, for first pitch of the Super Regional. But I think it'll work itself out pretty well. uh, Because uh, one thing about postseason baseball in the NCAA is that you cannot just manufacture the, uh, the atmosphere. Uh, that uh, you usually can manufacture throughout the season. There are no dancing uh, cheerleaders on the dugouts. There are no intro music. There's no intro videos. Uh, There are no uh, videos to play on the video board if you're trailing going into the ninth inning. So, you know, it's like the only time of the year that at a college park or a minor league park or a major league park that's got a halfway decent video board that you actually don't see the famous John, uh, John Belushi scene from Animal House when he's ramping up his, uh, his brothers and, uh, and trying to get them, uh, excited about fighting back, uh, against their arch rivals. I feel like you see that going into the ninth inning every time the home team is trailing, but you won't see that during the postseason. There is nothing to whip fans into a frenzy other than the fans themselves. And so, I mean, hey, I mean, it's, it's up to you. It's up to you to create the atmosphere that's there. Uh, there will be music playing. Uh, it just won't be the music that you usually hear during the games. Uh, there will be things on the video board that are playing throughout the game. It's just not the stuff that usually is playing to get fans fired up uh, on a Razorback side of things. So that's one of the reasons why Baum Stadium has, to me, more of an advantage in the postseason than it usually would because you you got a bunch of great stuff that's going on at the video board and with the RBI girls dancing and all of the all of that kind of stuff. But you already have a fan base that knows exactly what they need to do at whatever time. They have traditions all throughout. Uh, there there are always moments that the honk call comes out. There are always moments where fans rise in unison and get themselves fired up. And so it's up to the fans in order to get this going. And it, and really, it can't matter about what time of the day it is. Uh, You've got to show up. You've got to be ready to go. Ty, you're always ready to go at, like, you know, 5 in the morning uh, when you show up for a morning show. you got to be, man. A- anybody that's doing morning radio looks at somebody complaining about an 11 o'clock start time and thinks to themselves, what? I'm, I'm fired up and ready to go even before I wake up. This is just, hey, that's like a night game for you guys. Yeah, it's a, it changes from the run of a mill waking up at 4.30 in the morning to getting to sleep in a little bit. And... I'll be uh, uh, tomorrow, or excuse me, on Saturday. I'm going to work out with my uncle down in Dallas. I'm going to get up at like eight. That's like sleeping in for me. So you're going to you're going to work out and then show up, right? Correct. So you're already going to be you know you're going to be breathing fire through your nose just from the intense workout you put yourself through. Exactly, and I I can't remember if it was Bob Holt or if it was Matt Jones, one of the guys at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. They asked Cronin why he liked to be slapped in the face before the games, and he said that there was a study that got you extra hyped or got you extra motivated, and that's why he did that. And it only lasted a short period of time. 
but because he's a closer, it's the short period of time he needs to be that much more hyped up. And I guess, I guess the real story is Phil that Arkansas fans right before the opening pitch should all slap each other. I think this is a this is a fantastic idea. Nothing could go wrong with that. Absolutely, no. I think I mean this is the sort of thing that any radio station worth its worth its transmitter is is doing a promo, just (laughs) telling fans to slap each turn to your left. Well, you know you got you got you got to choose one person that's next to you. You got to face each other and slap each other in the face before you before the team takes the field. Yeah, I guarantee at that point, Baumwalker Stadium will be brighter than usual and it'll be louder than usual too. And kind of the topic that we wanted to hit on first, and we addressed it a little bit this week, and I was giving John a hard time about it in the morning rush. It just seems like everyone is complaining, moaning. There's another word I could use there about this: these starting times. And look, I get it. I'm not going to be the idiot that says night games are worse than day games when it comes to atmosphere because clearly the night game atmosphere is better. And as I alluded to earlier this week, there's more time to drink, there's more time to do other things, and that gets you more hyped up the anticipation. That being said, there was a quote that I sent you yesterday, Phil, from Scotty Borderline that he got from Jack Kinley. Bob Holt asked him a great question, and I thought Jack nailed it right on the head. How do you guys feel about not being in the prime time, playing early? You know, prime time is whenever we play. That's all we got to do. <laughs> we got to show up when the first pitch is there, and uh, regardless of when that start time is, we've done it all the rest of the year, and uh, it's nothing that's going to catch us off guard. So, you, you know, I mean, the games are on TV. Obviously, you don't have any, any doubt this place will be packed at no you know, 11 a.m. So. No doubt. To the fans attending this game or games this weekend, and this is particularly more tailored towards the 11 a.m. game. If you can't get fired up for a super regional matchup against one of your rivals in baseball, against a team you've struggled mightily against the last couple of years, and for the chance to go to Omaha, I can't give you anything else. Dave Van Horde can't give me anything else. This team can't give you anything else. You ought to be thrilled, but I feel like most of the attention from this weekend, Phil, is tailored towards the game times rather than an opponent and rather than the hype that you should have heading into this series. Am I wrong about that? I think there's been a little focus on that, yes. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think that the start time will have any negative um, uh, connotation to the attendance. People that – why would you not show – hey, look, I, I can understand not being there for potentially a game against Central Connecticut that you feel so sure you're going to win and you got to be at work and it's a Friday at 1.00 you don't show up. Still 10K plus, but yeah. Still 10, exactly, right, which which I was I thought I was naive thinking they would get that going in. Ended up getting it anyway. And you didn't make fun of me enough. You can do that sometime this week. Make fun of me for me saying that that was ignorant for you to think there'd be 10,000. I underestimated Razorback baseball fans, honestly. I'm just putting that one in the cookie jar and putting that <laughs> cookie jar in the freezer and saving that for a, for a long time off if I need it. There you go. But it's now, I mean, you got a Saturday. I mean, it's it's a Saturday, and I, it'll creep up on me a lot quicker than than it will a lot of other people. Because I mean, I start, and and the ball players are the same way. We have routines leading up to the start of the game, and sometimes it can throw you off a little bit when the routine starts with waking up and then going straight to the ballpark. Uh, so I mean, that reminds you of you know having to play the early game in Hoover, which nobody ever wants to play that nine thirty game in the SEC tournament. So. Uh, Hey, it's not gonna it's not gonna diminish the attendance. Maybe it takes a moment or so for everybody to start getting loud. But hey, if Arkansas scores a run in the first inning and keeps Ole Miss off the scoreboard, the place is gonna be rocking. It's gonna it it won't it won't feel like a night game because the daylight will be out, and 
And maybe that's a better thing. Maybe that actually leaves you with a little more energy because you didn't waste any time, uh, you know, doing anything else during the day and then showing up at night and having to manufacture some of that enthusiasm. But I think you're right. I think some of the some of the things that are I think are really cool about this series might have been. I don't know if lost is the right word because I mean the guys at the Democrat have been terrific covering all sorts of angles on this. Yeah. Um, you know, we've tried to focus on on matchups and on who's gonna start. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. I mean, you know Isaiah Campbell is gonna be your starting pitcher for Saturday, and that's no surprise. Who's your game two starter? Right now, that's up in the air. You're not even worried about a game three starter because if things go according to plan and Arkansas does what they did almost all year which is when every game Isaiah Campbell pitched, which includes the game against Ole Miss uh, back in, in, in late March, then you, you should be up one game to none and hopefully have a chance to close it out on Saturday. So Dave is looking at this, I think, like he does any other series where usually that, that last game, that last game that is on the schedule, he always he has been going with a TBA more often than not, even though we've known who it's been who it going is. into the weekend. I mean, it's just kind of flip-flopped here and there, whether it's been Wicklander or whether it's been Nolan. Um, my, my own personal opinion is that if you're up one game to none, even I think if you, no matter what happens, I think Connor Nolan's your starting pitcher for game two. Yeah, I think he's been uh, a little bit more reliable with the ability to throw strikes, get through that lineup a couple of times at least. Hopefully by then Isaiah Campbell gave you seven, maybe eight good innings against this Really tough Ole Miss lineup, and you've got a rested bullpen, hoping that maybe you only need one inning from Matt Cronin on, on, on Saturday, and you've got a, a full bullpen ready to go that once Nolan gets through the order twice, because that's when they're usually taking him out. Face 18 batters, maybe 19 or 20, but usually not many more than that. And in a game, if you're one game to none and, and, and that Sunday game gets you to Omaha, I don't think they're going to mess around. I think I think I think Nolan would be the guy, and then if that series goes to a third and deciding game, you're going to go with Patrick Wicklander. What's the most that Matt Cronin has pitched? Has it been an inning and a third, or has he pitched has he pitched two innings this year? Because it's, cu- it's been a couple of innings. Okay, um, it hasn't been as often as as, as last year. Uh, he's been more of a four-out pitcher, you know, four-out saves, mm-hmm. uh, more often than the two-inning saves. I think if I remember correctly last year, and I'm not looking at his day-by-day, day, but I think he had at least a couple of three-inning saves last year, including one at Florida. And let me see here. I mean, I'm looking at his numbers from this season, and the longest outing for Cronin was two innings. Okay. Now, I'd be surprised if the, he's not going to go two innings on Friday, that uh, on Saturday. That would be a surprise, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to see him – Try to get four outs. Yeah, and that's and that's one of kind of the thing I was thinking about. If you get a really good outing from Zay, I don't think you're going to be able to get eight innings out of him like you did this past weekend. But if you're able to get six or seven really solid innings and then get a bullpen guy in there, whether it's Cops, whether it's Costi Shock, whether it's Ramage, whoever they decide to go with first, and then get Cronin in for an inning, and then the following night, let's say you're up, you think you're acting like you still don't think DVH would pitch him four innings. The night on the Saturday night, and then Sunday pitch him too. You think that's probably too taxing on him? On on Campbell? On Cronin? Oh, not, on Cronin? No, not not Campbell. I know Campbell. Uh, no, I mean him. I I think Matt could come back after throwing two innings, but I think it, you know it also depends on. I mean he, he he'll trust Jacob Kostyshock with the lead in the eighth inning okay. against Ole Miss. He'll trust. Scroggins would be the guy to come in in the seventh inning. Costi Shock, I think, in the eighth. There's a script that they'll go by with this. And then if it comes to a left-handed batter or a switch hitter that hits a little better 
on on the left side, they'll go to Cronin. It's partial. Parsh- a lot of it is the situation at hand. Yeah. Who's on base? You know, I mean, that's what they did in the series in in the game in Hoover, where Cronin comes on in the eighth inning. Um, you're up a run and inherits the. I think it was the, the go-ahead runs on base, and uh, ended up get, they wanted to switch Thomas Dillard from left to right. He bats right-handed against Cronin, and he shot the first pitch up the middle, pretty much because he was sitting on a fastball. And then you end up losing three to two, and uh, but that was a little different because Zebulon Vermillion started that eighth inning. That's not Zebulon Vermillion isn't going to get the ball in the eighth inning on Saturday or Sunday with the lead. You know, it, Sunday, that's a different story because at that point, everybody's probably been pitched and, and someone may have to step up in a role that they hadn't really held too often, like Marshall Denton closing a game against Vanderbilt. Are you talking about Monday or Sunday? Uh, I'm talking on, on, well, I get, I get these things crossed up. I'm yeah. so, it's so weird with a Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah. But that's what happened last year. Arkansas played South Carolina in the same ways. Uh, so some notes that I came up, I, I was looking at here. So I mean, Arkansas lost three out of five to Ole Miss this season mm-hmm. time. But they led for more than half of the innings played. There are 45 innings played between Arkansas and Ole Miss this year. The Hogs led for 25 of those innings. Now they did lead wire to wire. Uh, in the, the, the game that Isaiah Campbell pitched against the Rebels in the regular season, which was March 29th, a 5-3 win. Campbell went seven innings, and he was dominated. Two runs, four hits, a couple of walks, and five strikeouts. He didn't pitch against the Rebels in Hoover, which I think is a good thing for Arkansas. Um, so they did lead wire to wire in that game. Ole Miss won three games. They led for a total of seven innings. I think we talked about this going in to one of the two games that these teams played in Hoover. Uh, that Arkansas may have lost three out of five, but they held the lead longer. They just didn't hold the lead going in, you know, at the end of nine innings. They had trouble in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings holding the lead. So, I, I mean, I could, I could potentially see Arkansas grabbing early leads in, in each of the first two games. And the struggle has been two things. Adding to that lead, Arkansas has really struggled to score against the Ole Miss bullpen, and keeping Ole Miss from scratching out a run or two if it's a two or one run ball game. This is where Arkansas's pen struggled at the end of the regular season was holding close leads. This can be a dominant bullpen, and sometimes you have to hold a one run lead. They didn't do that against Ole Miss. They're going to have to in this series. I don't see a huge separation between Arkansas and Ole Miss. I think the Razorbacks are the better of the two teams. I think it's by slim margins. And and this the, the pen is going to have to hold a one- or two-run lead in at least one of the two wins that they're shooting for. Statistically, all right, innings one through four, Arkansas held a 13-5 to run scoring advantage. Innings five through nine, Ole Miss had a 19 to seven scoring Yeesh. average. Ugh. You don't want to see those type of numbers this weekend. That's exactly right. So Ole Miss's pen seemed to do well against Arkansas. That was the real issue for the Rebels this year. Not their starting pitching, not their lineup, though the lineup has been a bit of a roller coaster at times. It's been their bullpen. It's been guys like like Austin Miller, like Parker Caracy, um, that have had the ups and the downs this year and can be dominant when they're on, and they can really struggle when they're off. And Arkansas has got to make those guys be off for this series because they can get into the bullpen in the fifth and sixth inning. You're going to have to keep scoring a little bit, but I do think that pen 
will need to hold a one-run lead Saturday or Sunday, or Monday, too. So our buddy Aaron Torres was in Vegas two weeks ago, and uh, another friend of the show, Tyler McComas, who hosts a sports talk radio show in Norman, who we've had on a few times, he just texted me. He's in Vegas right now, and he just sent me a Caesars card, and it's actually Saturday game, and I would have thought the same thing. I'm curious to see what Vegas has and what Caesar has for the projection of the series, but Arkansas is minus 180 favorites, and Ole Miss is plus 160 dogs for this first game in uh, with Isaiah Campbell. And who's... Who's Ole Miss pitching their first game? I don't know their ace, Phil. Uh, it would be Will Etheridge. Okay. So that's first game, at least. Arkansas out in Vegas at Caesars Entertainment is the the favorite in this one. But that that's kind of interesting. I, I haven't seen, and I haven't done a, a great job in researching a ton of trying to find the overall like series if, if Arkansas or Ole Miss is favorite. But I'd be curious to see who's the favorite in this one because we've We've often talked about it, Phil. Ole Miss has had quite a bit of success against Arkansas lately, and I know that they've. you mentioned they've won 3 of 5 this year once in the SEC tournament. Arkansas got them once there, and then they took the series in Baum. But I'm curious to see how Vegas would put this series being at Baum Stadium, being that Arkansas has so much success during at home during the postseason, and kind of counteract that with the Rebels' success against the Razorbacks as of late. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's more about this year than anything that's happened in the previous years, and I think it's more about what's going on right now with these teams than anything that really happened at the end of March or in May in Hoover, because those those games in Hoover I don't think were indicative of Arkansas playing uh, with a postseason mindset, and I think that it's much different right now. The end of March, that was, a, that was a pitching staff that was still in flux. Cody Scroggins started the final game of that series. Patrick Wicklander was working out of the bullpen, and we, we know very well he's not the same pitcher in relief that he is as a starter. He, yeah. can be, he can be great as a starter, and I don't think he we ever really saw the engine turn over when he pitched in relief. He just wasn't very comfortable in that role. And, you know, it's kind of weird because you think about certain players, and this can equate to not only baseball, but basketball, football, whatever. And it's more, I think more basketball than anything because that's where my mind always gravitates towards. I always like coming off the bench, and I knew guys like that. There's guys in the NBA and college like that where they prefer coming off the bench. But some guys are more comfortable getting their, their worries out early in the first opening pitches where they don't come in with, with guys on and they're not feeling that pressure right off the bat. So if, if that's better for Wicklander, obviously Dave made the change a couple weeks back, putting him in a starting role, and then now it looks like he was in the two spot, and Nolan was at three, and now it looks like, based on what you're saying, and I feel like that's the consensus, Phil, is that Nolan's going to get that two spot, even though Matt Hobbs told us earlier on the morning rush that it hadn't been decided yet. I think we all believe that Connor Nolan's going to get that t- game two start. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be any surprise with that. Not, I think you'll see Doug Nikhazy, uh the freshman left-hander, pitch game two for Ole Miss. Uh, he's on the freshman, all-SEC freshman team. Etheridge is a, a guy with really good stuff that I think Arkansas uh, should could have some success against. What about with Nolan? I don't. I think you told me this. The one thing that you were worried about, Nolan, is that Ole Miss has a decent amount of good left-hand hitters, right? And the fact that... Campbell, it's not as big of a deal because as, as hard as he throws and as good as his stuff is, it's not going to impact him as much. But with Nolan still hasn't reached his full potential in terms of power and speed with his fastball and his other pitches, you talked about how just a little bit like the Wicklander left-handed 
him a right-handed scenario, that would be the one caveat that you might start Wicklander over him, but it seems like they're still going to go with Nolan regardless. Yeah, I, I just think they're probably they're a little more uh, confident in, in Connor because he's more of a strike thrower, uh, and he's really good. He's he's a really good competitor as a pitcher. Um, he, he's really going to be something to watch, I think, over these next couple of years. Jeff's Clubhouse is hosting a watch party this Saturday for the Super Regional Game 1 against Ole Miss. Brunch and drinks start at 10 a.m. while the game starts at 11. Jeff's Clubhouse serves up an awesome buffet with all-you-can-drink mimosas and much more. Come by and see us 2801 Old Greenwood Road in Fort Smith. Well, I appreciate you joining us as always on a Thursday. Are we focusing too much on the uh, on the first pitch times rather than the, uh, the what I think is the best super regional in the country this weekend? Oh, I understand the fans want night games. Of course, as reporters, we like early games for deadlines. And, you know, it, it was a storyline with the players yesterday. I thought, I thought Jack Henley had a great response. I asked him, uh, like how it felt not to play in prime time. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I think he said, anytime we play is prime time. So I think that's a great answer. Um, it is a real contrast when you think their last game was at 8.30 at night, and now it's 11 a.m. It's like Dave Van Horn said, if that had been like back-to-back days, maybe that would have been weird. But when you're talking a week apart, it's it's probably not an issue. And, um, yeah, i got to believe these players are going to be hyped and ready, and the fans will be too, you know, whether it's, you know, whatever the time it is. And, of course, we know Arkansas has played into the early mornings before, you know, in that uh, crazy Missouri State game. So I, I think these guys are just ready to play whatever the time is. Bob, you had a great story, um, and the and the Democrats came out today about how all the Arkansas players had to, how they kept their focus during draft time. You know, where you're trying to compartmentalize a couple of things you're trying to achieve at the same time that other student athletes don't ever have to worry about, which is playing in the national tournament in pressure packed situations, uh, and at the same time. Uh, worried about where you slide in the draft and where you slot and 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 if you're going to sign and and everything that goes around with that and it just that is a really difficult thing and it amazes me that the, all these all these players are able to compartmentalize their life in the way that they do. Well, yeah, because you think about it, you know the high picks like like Don, Dominic Fletcher and and Isaiah Campbell. I mean, I don't know exactly what they'll end up signing for, but MLB.com on the draft tracker has has the slotted uh, you know I guess you know estimated slot value. And, those guys are both well over 800000 Well, that's obviously life-changing money, I would hope, for most people. It certainly would be for me. And, uh, you know, you think about that. This is something they've all, um, you know, really been playing for ever since they started playing baseball, probably, and understood about, you know, the major leagues and everything. And, and you think about when you see these guys, you know, get picked high in the NFL drafts, they're all crying and everything and hugging off their parents. And, and uh, these guys, you know, luckily a lot of the Arkansas players, we're able to, you know, be with their families. But I know just watching the games Monday night, I think UCLA had three players picked while they were playing yeah. in the first two rounds. And that just seems almost criminal to me that those kids don't get to enjoy that moment. And I, I know I understand Major League Baseball is going to do what they're going to do, but I, I don't think it'd be that terrible. They could at least move it off Monday, which I know they like to do because it's a light schedule and they don't want to detract from their games. Or maybe moving it to July would be hard to do because they obviously want to get these players picked and signed and all that. But it just blows my mind that Major League Baseball can't be a little more accommodating to to the college players. I I think it's a real shame. 
Bob, you wrote a piece on Isaiah Campbell. It was either yesterday or the day before, and one of the things that uh, it's been pointed back to several times, how he went drafted in the 24th round last year and then to the 76th overall pick. How much can DVH use that as a selling point for these pitching prospects he's trying to bring into Arkansas? Well, I'm sure they're going to hammer that point home. I remember... Uh, you know, it's happened for other players. Let me think about Andrew Benintendi. I think he was like a 30th round pick or something by the Reds, his hometown Cincinnati Reds. And then two years later at Arkansas, I think he was the, was he the seventh overall pick. Is that sound right, Phil? Mm-hmm. Yes, and, that's right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I just don't, there's no doubt that um, you look at Arkansas. I mean, Dave's lost a lot of assistant coaches to, to um, well, he lost, he lost Wes Johnson to the big leagues, or he's lost some head coaching jobs. And um, but he keeps you know hiring good ones because this is a you know this is a place guys want to be Arkansas you know it's a great career move and so yeah I think uh, that's definitely something they can use about how you come here and uh, you know we're going to develop you into a, to a great player and you know you're going to get your education paid for at least partially <laughs> and uh, and other teams though too you you know you're starting to see kids even first round picks decide to come to college which. You know, I think that was unheard of a few years ago. So I, I think the major, and you're seeing that most of the, the higher picks are college guys. I think that the major league teams uh, like the idea of picking an older, more mature guy. They have a better idea of what they're getting. Um, the draft's a crapshoot in, in any sport, but I certainly think the older guy you get, I mean, you don't want to be too old. You know, you don't want to be 25 or something, but um, I, I think the college game is really showing that guys can can develop uh, like they would in the minor leagues and then get to the big leagues pretty fast. Like you look at Andrew Benintendi, he was in the big leagues less than two years, I think, after uh, he led Arkansas to the World College World Series. And Bob, that kind of blends into my next question. Obviously, Phil was closely connected with minor league programs for quite some time, and now with the Razorback baseball program the last couple years, and we were having a conversation earlier this week talking about how he used to think that minor leagues was the best way and you got better coaching, better facilities, and then he's kind of He's kind of maybe not 100%, but changed his mindset a little bit being around Razorback Baseball, the baseball program, and Dave Van Horn. Do you think it's easier for college coaches today to recruit guys to come play college baseball rather than them just go straight off to the minors? Oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. It's like Dave said yesterday. They, they can't write big checks like these, these big league teams can for signing bonuses. They can obviously give guys scholarship money, and although... I don't honestly know how many uh, baseball college baseball players are on full rides because you've got you know, basically you know twelve point seven scholarships for twenty five guys or whatever that are on your travel squad. But yeah, I think I think the facilities have gotten so much better. The stadiums, the, the you know the practice areas, Arkansas is as good as their facilities are getting ready to make them even better. You see teams, especially on the SEC, are, are you know building new stadiums or renovating them and. I think the players see how well they're developed. I mean, the fact that a big league team went after Wes Johnson because, you know, they probably felt he was ahead of the curve in analytics and things like that. And Matt Hobbs is very much in that vein, I think, too. So, yeah, I think without a doubt, um, you know, kids are seeing that. Now they're not getting, you know, signing bonuses to come to college, but they're staying in nice hotels. A lot of these big schools, they fly charter planes. I mean, I, I, Phil could probably speak to, I don't know, too many minor league teams that have charter flights and stay at, you know, four-star hotels and, and things like that. Well, what, 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 a, what a college team like Arkansas can show is how a lot of these kids' draft stock has improved, you know, from when they were high schoolers to when they are draft eligible, you know. And I think Isaiah Campbell is a prime example of that. Blaine Knight is a prime example of that. 
Casey Martin will be a prime example of that. Same with Heston Kerstad. Coming to campus made them money. It just made them money two or three years later. Oh, yeah, well, it's just a smart move. Now, if your family's in desperate need of money right then, I can certainly understand, you know, kids signing out of high school. But um, if if you don't need that money right then, you know, you might turn, you know, 400000 into, you know, a million or $2 million or something like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think, you know, if you feel like you want, you know, if you, I understand school's not for everybody, but if you feel like, I also think college is just a good experience. I mean, not just, you know, working towards your degree, but just, you know, being exposed to different things and, and just kind of growing and maturing and stuff. Yeah, man, if you're a pro, I mean, it's a job. And I'm not saying these kids don't work hard. They work, they work very hard, you know, at their sport and in school. But, um, you know, once you sign a pro contract, it, it, it's a job, you know. And Bob, like kind of what you just said, like college is a great experience. Would you trade your time at Missouri for anything? I mean, I had a great time at Arkansas. I know Phil had a good time when he was at Indiana for those two years. I feel like a college experience, people just kind of gloss over how much fun you can have and however many years you're there on campus. And I feel now, hold like- on a second. Have you heard Bob Holt talk about Missouri? I think like he, he Bob, I think you wish you were still a student there. You love it so much. <laughs> well, Missouri is it's a great place, great school. Um, I think, you know, we probably covered last week how they, they got uh, shafted by the NCAA uh, selection committee. But that, Hold on, you're supposed, to be an, you're supposed to be an unbiased <laughs> observer, Bob. None of this talk about Missouri getting well, screwed. Well, believe me, I've covered lots of Missouri losses, too. So I've had <laughs> Arkansas on various sports. So, yeah, I learned how to do that a long time ago. But yeah, first guy I ever covered was Norm Stewart, so that, that's, that's very educational right there. So uh, in researching the, the regular season between Arkansas and Ole Miss, and I counted the SEC tournament as well, Arkansas led for more than half of the 45 innings these teams played. Ole Miss won three games and led for a total of seven innings. And what that tells me, Bob, is that Arkansas had a chance to win probably all five of those games. And, and that also tells me that I think they've got a chance to get leads early, and if the bullpen does what they did this last weekend and what they struggled to do the last two weekends of the regular season, including Hoover, is to hold a slim lead. I think that'll be the difference in this series. Well, that's, that's a great stat. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you look at Hoover. I mean, you know, Matt Crone came in. They had a tight game, and Matt Crone came in with, uh, I think the tying runs were on base, and he struck out four straight guys. And, and then a couple of days later, Ole Miss got him. Because uh, they've they've got real good hitters, and it's like Dave said, maybe seeing him back to back like that, you know, help their hitters out. But um, yeah, it's a, it's I think they're very uh, evenly matched teams, um, you know, in terms of and, you know, just like Dave said, Ole Miss maybe is a little more experienced on the roster, a little older, but Arkansas maybe has. He didn't say this, but I'd say maybe Arkansas has a little more talent overall when you look at you know guys like Casey Martin and Essen Kerstad, who we know are going to be high picks next year. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a great rivalry. I mean, border schools, and really goes back to the old football games, you know, back in the, the 50s and stuff and wh- or whenever they started playing. And um, But, yeah, you feel like Arkansas at home has a big advantage, but the one team that's been able to beat them here the last couple times is Ole Miss. So it's, it's a very intriguing series, and I'm sure, um, or I suspect, uh, both these teams would rather be playing somebody from the you know, ACC or Big 12 and not be playing another SEC team, but that that's just the way it fell this year. So Ole Miss 
has been to the College World Series once under Mike Bianco, which really surprises me. I mean, they've been there five times. Arkansas has been there five times under Dave Van Horn. Mike Bianco has been there 19 years. They've only been to one College World Series, which is really surprising. And I, you know, it's not that you know you you win because you try to win for your coach, but you know these two great head coaches, and it feels like Ole Miss should probably should have been to Omaha more than the one time they've been. Yeah, you know, last year they had the great run in the SEC tournament, and then they got upset in the regional by Tennessee Tech. And this year, I think I'm right on this. I think they played six games in six days in that that searing heat in Hoover. And I remember thinking, man, I, I don't think they're going to win their regional because they're going to be too worn out. I mean, they literally were like helping one of the players off the field for dehydration back to back yeah. days. Their pitching was spent, but I give them credit; they didn't just win their regional. I mean, they destroyed teams, and so it looks like maybe they learned some from last year. I don't know, but yeah, Ole Miss has got a a really quality program. They're kind of like that that basketball program that makes the NCAA tournament every year and gets to the Sweet 16 or that has, has trouble breaking through and getting to the Final Four, or I guess in this case it would be the Elite Eight when you think about baseball. But, um, yeah, I'm sure that weighs on their mind, and they really, you know, obviously they want to get to Omaha no matter what, but, you know, being this close and playing a team who they've, they've had Arkansas's number, frankly. They've beaten Arkansas 10 the last 14 times, so I'm sure they're coming in here pretty confident feeling pretty good. Well, Bubba would just say that means Arkansas is due, and I'd be fine with that. Bob, you're due as well. Appreciate you coming on, as always. We'll see you this weekend. Okay, you guys take care. Jets Clubhouse is hosting a watch party this Saturday for the Super Regional Game 1 against Ole Miss. Brunch and drinks start at 10 a.m. while the game starts at 11. Come by and see us 2801 Old Greenwood Road in Fort Smith. I guess we might as well just play our intro for one of our favorite segments that we get into on a Thursday, Halftime Homework. Oh, I'm I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Get out of my class. Out, get out! I was still thinking of going back to school. I do my homework now. The Millennial versus the Middle-Aged. It's time for Halftime Homework. I'm telling you, I am I am exactly the same with our halftime homework that I was as a student in high school and in college. I mean, I get this procrastinator. I, I, you know, I people told me I was just good at procrastinating, and then I became a professional at it, and then I was a procrastinator. I'm getting this stuff done literally as the intro to the show is playing. Uh, I did watch my episode of uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'll get to that in a moment, though. So our theme last week, and I feel like Ty, this is a theme for us throughout the show you know football basketball baseball three main things we talk about involving arkansas athletics uh we do get into food uh we do get into uh friends um happenings during the weekend i feel we talk about alcohol a little bit which is okay we don't go over the top with it and what one of the themes that is is sort of weaving its way through our on-air relationship. Now, we didn't go into this expecting it, but this is this is the case, is the idea of Arkansas always getting screwed somehow. And that was last week. You had me watch the last two minutes of the 1979 Final Four game uh, between Arkansas and Larry Bird's Indiana State Sycamores. And, yes, I thought Arkansas got screwed in that one. I don't think there's any doubts. But I also, I mean, I, I, I'm not from Arkansas. I wasn't part of the Razorback fan base for the first, oh, 10 years of living here. Um, and so, I mean, I still also, I'm not, another thing where we're different is that you get with the conspiracy theories, you come up with your own really interesting ones. I feel like you should have an extra layer of tin foil on your hat every once in a while. X-Files, man. So to speak. 
Um, but I mean, there have been so many bad calls in the history of sports, and I just I thought of two of them at the top of the list that I thought you needed to see just as egregious of as as any bad call could ever ever be. So, and they have absolutely nothing to do with Arkansas. Although I look, I know Arkansas is part of you know St. Louis Cardinal fan base, Cardinal country, so to speak. Uh, and so, <laughs> what what did I picture when I even said the name? You go ahead and say it, because I had you learn about this umpire. Do you want me to say his nickname or his name? I want you to say his name. Okay. Not 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 the play. I'm talking about the one that hurt the Cardinals. Oh, the Cardinals. Uh, yes, Don Don Dinkinshire, and, and the okay, best so part. Sorry, right now, they're right now they're they're Cardinal fans that are, <laughs> that are ramming their cars into a side into a side beam just because they heard the name of something that should have never been mentioned to them ever again. Relationships have been ended because because couple because one angry member of a couple said those two words to another member of the couple that they used to love. Yeah, so for whatever reason, Phil, I thought this blown call, I had heard about it, I hadn't researched it extensively, but I thought this blown call would have been the third and final out. But as you had me do research and got into it, it was only going to be the first out of the inning. After watching it several times, listening to the broadcast, it was clearly an out. But the best part of this call, Phil, you got a young Al Michaels on it. One to nothing, St. Louis. The Cardinals three outs away. So obviously the clips were blended together where you have Dankinger's missed call and then the Royals hit that led them to the win 2-1 over the Cardinals, which is just, it was just a blow. And I, this is coming from a Royals fan. And I had, I think I'd seen the highlight maybe like once before, but I'm not a baseball activist like you are. And I, I don't just watch these things religiously. So I didn't know how bad it was, but Phil, that was, that was bad. And I will say this, I will give him this as, as kind of, shining the light for Tommy Graff as a ref. It was a bang, bang play. Now, the guy we're going to talk about next, that was repeated. His offense that he did over and over and over again. This was a bang, bang play, Phil, for Don Dankinger. I know he missed the call, but you also have to think about there wasn't replay back then. They didn't have that opportunity to go back and check. Now, Michaels and the guy he was paired with clearly saw that it was an out. That being said, the umps couldn't go back and check. And therefore, Don Dankinger gets the blunt of the St. Louis rage that still moves on today. I mean, there were death threats sent to Dankinger over this. He needed help from Major League Baseball security, who contacted the FBI. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you know you end up you end up theoretically never never getting off your shoulders. But uh, Dankinger has been uh, welcomed back into. St. Louis's circle, so to speak. I read where he was. He even spoke at a 20th anniversary dinner that celebrated that 85 Cardinals team that benefited the Whitey Herzog Youth Foundation. Jeez, I don't know if I'd be doing that. That that takes some guts. You know, in the next day in that series, this was 85. They end up getting crushed 11 to nothing by by Spike by Kansas City. It was like it was almost like it felt like Arkansas last year in the College World Series. Yeah. You know, after game, after after the way you lost game two, you're thinking, well, at least you got tomorrow. But you kind of go to sleep that night knowing that uh, 
that that's a really difficult pie to to wipe off your face. Yeah, the physical impact, the physical toll that happens with these ball players, whatever the sport, that's one thing. But when you add an emotional aspect to something like that, where you know you had the the and again, we don't know what would have happened with two outs because there was two outs he still had to go, but that definitely had an impact on the game. That guy who made the base scored in that inning, so it's just. It's such an emotional, crushing, crushing moment. And you mentioned the Arkansas foul ball last year. I mean, that was the same way. I had in as soon as I saw that, I was like, "The series is over." And I hate you hate saying you hate saying that as a guy that graduated from the University of Arkansas. But it's just it's stuff like that happens, and there's just nothing you can do about it. After that, every seemed the, everything seemed to go Oregon State Beavers' way. All right, so then you, yeah, sure it was a bang bang play, but it still was the wrong call, and it would, and in today's day and age, that call would have not been upheld. But there is no replay for strike zones, and there is no such thing as a bang bang strike. We call it a borderline pitch, you know, and it might have been on the black, or it might have been on a little bit of the white. And you're not quite sure. But then there's Eric Gregg's strike zone. Uh, Eric Gregg's strike zone would have needed one of those signs that, that, that the big vehicles have to drive on the highway with. Oversized load is what Eric Gregg's strike zone needed a sign around, especially during go-ahead time. Yeah, we just listened to the legendary Al Michaels. Let's go to another legend, Bob Costas. There's his 14th strikeout, tying the National League Championship Series record. The 3-2 pitch. him out on what McGriff thought was ball four. It's his 15th. That took place in the 1997 National League Championship Series. And can man, I, can I tell you I love that call? I love the call on Eric Gregg punches him out on what Fred McGriff and the rest of the world unquote thought was ball four. Yeah, it was, it was bad. And Phil, I'll give you a bonus point if you know his nickname. You probably do because you you know all this stuff. What was I, Eric Gregg's nickname? I don't remember it. I don't. The Plump Ump because he <laughs> he tipped, he was over three hundred pounds and he, uh, he I think at one point he got up into the four hundreds, but that was his nickname. And he had a quote for after the game. He said, "My strike zone has been the same for twenty five years. I don't have any problem with it. I can't I can't stress to you how you listening to it on the radio, listen to the call. That's one thing." For those who want to see how bad the strike zone actually was, just type in 1997 National League Championship Series Game 5, and they'll pop up with Eric Gregg's strike zone clip, and they have the box, and then they have the target where the ball ends up. Phil, is it fair to me to say that the ball's like a foot off the plate? And oh, yes. Still, and he's still, and they weren't even close. And the the stat after the game was in Game 5, 42 of Hernandez's, Hernandez's pitches, who was the guy that got those 15 strikeouts were called strikes. 42 of his pitches. Phil, during the regular season, he only got 29% of his pitches called strikes. So you can see a, a deficit and a and cringeworthy difference there. But it was just abysmal. And I don't know, if, I don't. I can't really get into most more of the conspiracy behind either of those calls. I don't know if there is one. I bet if I was alive then, I would try and concoct one. But right now, I'm just sitting back at both those calls. More on Greg's than anything because it was repeated over and over again. Man, I would hate to be a Braves fan in that situation, and I'd hate to be a Cardinals fan in that situation. Now, for me, who this was 97, so four years before that, five years before that, the Braves literally ripped my heart out of my chest and showed it to me before I died. 
uh, by beating the Pirates in the 1992 National League Championship. And that's something maybe we get into in October if we do some homework on the words Francisco Cabrera and Sid Bream. You see some tears coming out of my eyes right now as I'm talking about this. So I didn't feel bad for the Braves. I was cheering them on. I was like, that's right, Eric Gregg. Call pitches, strikes, they almost hit the batter. Like it's college baseball now. You know, Gregg was also fun to watch umpire because he was as demonstrative of an umpire as you will ever see. And he had, my friends and I grew up doing imitations of, of umpires. We were that geeky with baseball. We actually imitated batter stances, pitchers, uh, mechanics, and umpires called strikes. So Eric Gregg had the best. It was like he was a boxer. You know, he would give a little jab for the for a strike, just a little jab for the strike, and then like the strike three call was the was a reach to the heavens and a yellow page tear. It was really something to see, and he was a large gentleman, and he also one of the biggest blunders in in business history involving athletes or umpires in this case was in 1999. Uh, 22 umpires that were part of the umpire union resigned as part of a labor action en masse, threatening Major League Baseball to not have real Major League umpires. And, 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 and Major League Baseball basically said to those guys, okay, bye-bye, and they were done. Eric Gregg was one of them that, that essentially retired um, without realizing he was doing that in 1999 as part of this giant uh, resignation. And if I remember correctly, I mean, he's from Philadelphia, and I think that before he passed away, and he died at the age of 55, a day after undergoing a stroke, he was working as a vendor or a bartender in in Veterans Stadium uh, for Eagles and Phillies games, which just seems to be an interesting way for a former umpire to conclude his his life's work, you know, yeah. on on the field for most of it, in the bar for the end of it. It feels like... Uh, like Sam Malone, like like like, uh, like Cheers, or almost like my former boss, Bill Valentine, who umpired in the 60s in the American League and then runs the Travelers for 38 or 40-some years. So, yeah, I'm glad you learned about these bad calls uh, because they're on par with, I don't remember the name of the side judge uh, in the... Uh, in the NFC title game this year, that blew the that blew the the mm, interference. I know who I, I I know his face. I just can't think of his name. Now, see, you will you're the only way that you ever get past these egregious strike calls, and you've heard me talk about it, is the robotic strike zone. I don't want a robotic strike zone, but I also don't want terrible umpiring. And it seems you know sooner or later something's going to have to give. Now, with what didn't the NFL announce recently that interference or lack of interference calls? is reviewable by code. Coaches can request, they can throw that red flag, and an interference call or a no call of interference can be reviewed. A year too late for all these Saints fans listening. They would have loved that rule in place a little over a year ago. Okay, so um, I watched, and I love that we we, we keep getting with this this, uh, 1980s stuff because uh, you had me research a guy that I used to love watching. I wasn't researching him, but... uh, this is what Wade Boggs told TMZ about how much he could drink in a day. How much? What's the most many beers you've ever drank in one day? In one day? Yeah. Over a hundred. Seriously? Yeah, over a hundred. Is it just in t- like you're just born with it? You just you get tolerated? It's like really? a hollow leg. Really? It's like a hollow leg. Yeah. It goes down there and then I take it off and back up. <laughs> hey man. Uh, uh, There's a funny little clip there from Wade Boggs, but it was part of the legend of Wade, not just being a guy who would, who would eat fried chicken before every single game, but that he probably was the best guzzler of beer in in major league baseball during the 80s and at one point he said he drank over a hundred beers during the day but then there is the show it's always sunny in philadelphia 
that I've never watched before. And now I'm probably going to get hooked on the show because Ty assigned me the Gang Beats Boggs episode where the four, and I don't even re- I don't even know the the uh, the premise of this show. I think these four friends own a bar or something in yeah. Philadelphia. So it's and it's it's funny because you have three dudes and then one of the dude's sisters who are like all friends. They all partially own this really bad bar called Patty's. It's great, and I'm not. Uh, and I was curious to see if you like it being for Pittsburgh and obviously Pittsburgh and Philadelphia rivals. But I think I, once once I got you hooked on this episode, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy it if you end up starting it. Well, it, it does star one of my favorite actors from the 80s and 90s, and that's Danny DeVito, yeah. uh, who is uh, who stars as Frank Reynolds in the show. But essentially, these four friends uh, decide out of the blue to take a flight all around the country, and they're trying to drink... They're trying to pull a Wade Boggs, which is drink 70 beers on a flight, on a cross-country flight. And two of them pull it off. Uh, Frank is more interested in as, as and joining, as he calls it, the airplane sex club, which just <laughs> blows me away. It's just hilarious. Um, and, and the rest of them, they're keeping score of how many beers they're drinking on their shirt. They all walk onto the plane wearing white T-shirts, and they get a mark for each beer that they drink. They're buying six beers from the, from the stewardess or from the flight attendant and everyone, at every time they can get a chance to. And they, can, they can't even stand by the time the, the, the plane finally lands. And Charlie, who's the one that's not – Charlie's not competing, right? He was the one marking – or was that, it was that Danny? He was, been- no, Charlie was the one uh, who actually, I think, uh, was able to hit the ball at the end of the show after drinking 71 beers yeah it was man that is i i gotta watch that episode again it just bringing it up that reminiscent about it has me wanted to watch it again but it's i'm glad you liked it man what is it with the red Sox and the beer and chicken thing i mean it was the same thing i forget the year was it 2003 was it 2008 or 9 the beer and chicken thing with uh with john lackey and a couple of the other red Sox in the in the clubhouse during games and then you get Wade Boggs with a beer and chicken thing too. Maybe it's just a baseball thing, and it's centered on Boston. I don't know. And but more, it was a good, it was a good show. It was a really good show, and I, I'll probably watch more of them. I hope you I hope you watch more of them. And more importantly, Wade Boggs participated. Thanks, Phil. I know this in the longest baseball game in history with the. Uh, now I'm going to forget the team name. What's the What's the that was Boston with the the Paw Sox, the Pawtucket, the Pawtucket Red Sox. That's it. That's it. But yeah, that. That episode is great. I encourage you, whoever, if you haven't watched Always in Sunny in Philadelphia, I would watch that episode first because that's just like, that's one of the best ones. And I think once people watch that, there's a chance they could continue the series. Can't there be? I mean, yesterday we got into this minor league team, the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers, that for one day are changing their name to the Utter Tuggers. If you're going to call yourself Utter Tuggers, why can't another team call themselves the Beer Guzzlers? You should have the, the, the Guzzlers versus the Tuggers. I think this... This has to happen. One of these Midwest League teams needs to change their name. It's the Beloit Snappers play. The, yeah, yeah. You actually want a Snappers versus Tuggers game, more so than a Guzzlers versus Tuggers game. I'm down. Anytime that they change names that are a little more crude and funny, I, I'm thoroughly on the board with that. 100%. All right. So here's what I need you to learn. And I, this was the moment that I realized that we needed to do a segment like this. I remember, I forget the day it was, but I think it was in December. I, I said the name Ricky Henderson, and you looked at me like I grew a third head. This is Ricky Henderson. Luke Brock was a symbol of great base stealing. But today, I'm the greatest of all time. Thank you. That, that was Ricky Henderson moments after he broke Lou Brock's career stolen base record with the words, I am the greatest of all time. And you know what? 
He was. He was the greatest leadoff hitter of all time. Ricky Henderson has the all-time major league record for a career for stolen bases, for runs scored, for on-base plus slugging. He has he's he's one of the best of all time. The guy stole over 1400 bases for his career. Oh, by the way, he was also caught stealing more times than anybody else. Uh, he's I think he's second or third all-time in plate appearances, won a couple of the World Series, won the 1989 American League MVP, won the, eight, the 1990 American League MVP with, with uh, the Oakland Athletics. But he just was, he what you could not take your eyes off of Ricky Henderson. Even the way that he caught a fly ball, he would smack the glove against his leg and then reach up and snatch it out of midair. He would do it in a stylish way. And, yes, he did drop it once because he was trying to be too stylish. Trying to be and cutesy out there. <laughs> And he's also he, he he continuously referred to himself in the third uh, in the, in the third person. Ricky Ricky this Ricky that his teammates absolutely adored him. And here is Ricky Henderson on Mike and Mike. Uh, I, this I think was 2009. They're just telling some funny Ricky Henderson stories. Okay, okay. <laughs> is this a true story? In the early 1980s, the Oakland A's accounting department was freaking out because their books were off by a million dollars. After an investigation, they realized the GM had given you a $1 million bonus check, and instead of cashing it, you framed it and hung it on the wall in your house. That's true. That's, That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's just a piece of some of the stuff that Ricky would pull. You need to learn about Ricky Henderson. Oh, my and, goodness. And you need to learn about what the things he did on the field, which were unprecedented. I mean, he stole – well, let me, I'm going to look at his, at, his, at his career because nobody else had stolen more than, I think, 107 bases until he steals 100 – he steals 130 in 1982 that'll never happen again the guy stole 66 bases at the age of 39 he stole 31 bases at the age of 41 i'm 42 years old he stole 25 bases at the age of 42 i wouldn't be able to steal a sack of garbage at the age of 42 it's incredible what he did for his career and he just was a personality too you and I are both big Larry Bird fans, and one of the things we liked about Larry Bird is his ability to trash the talk and back up what he said. I can point out a couple examples. Number one being Xavier McDaniel. I remember watching a documentary of him telling the X-Men, hey, this is where I'm going to shoot. I'm going to put in your bleeping face. And sure enough, he gets the ball exactly where he said he was going to do it, pulls out a fadeaway, and hits it in the X-Man's face. You think about the three-point contest he participated in with Hodges and some of those other guys. He walks in and goes... Um, which one of you guys is finishing second? He said another word, and they just kind of looked at each other, and then he walked out, would proceed to win the whole thing. I am a big fan of guys that can trash talk and then back it up. That's just, I, I love that. I've never had the ability to do that. Anytime I try start talking trash when I'm playing sports, I immediately fail when I'm ever doing basketball, football, whatever it may be. But for the guys out there that can compete, trash talk, and still be incredible, I envy them a lot, Phil. Here's the moment that I want you to look for Ricky because I feel like it. I feel like it defined his him to a T. If you could boil his entire career down to one moment, he check out check out the moment that he set the record for most runs scored in a career. Okay, because he scored the most runs of anybody that ever played Major League Baseball, and when he broke the record, he did it in an un, unprecedented fashion, and he did it in in premium Ricky Henderson style. So just look that moment up, maybe play it next week. It's it's unique. I bet he has he goes out with a bang or whatever he does circus like. He probably's just 
doing trying to draw as much attention to himself as possible. But again, he backed it up. So, so what do you got him. for me? All right, so I recommend this to Tommy earlier on the morning rush. He had talked about needing a new show to watch. I asked him, "Well, Tommy, do you have Amazon Prime?" He said, "Yes." So I recommend the show Suits. And I feel like I can't even reveal the whole premise behind it because that's the whole idea of the show. But I might as well. This is about a guy named Mike Ross who lies about being a lawyer to this prestigious law firm who only hires from Harvard, and he teams up with one of the best lawyers, if not the best lawyer, in the state in the city of New York, which uh, a guy named Harvey Specter, and then they go about their business. I think you'll be hooked by the first episode. I don't. I don't know if it's. It's not. It's. It's not as funny as a Always Sunny in Philadelphia. That's not the whole idea of the show. But it's a really good. It's a really addicting show. And I'm curious. You don't even have to watch the full episode because I think after the first full first twenty minutes, you'll want to watch the rest of the episode. I think the first episode's like forty. But yeah, your assignment, Phil, this for this next week is just to watch. Just watch the first 20 minutes of Suits, and if you like it, continue it and tell me what you think next week. Okay, so that's going to go on the iPad at about 11.40 a.m. one week from today. Perfect. It's, hey, it doesn't matter about when you do it. It's about getting it done. That's what that's what I've learned over the years. Sometimes it's okay to procrastinate as long as you do a good job and you get the assignment completed. You're listening to the Halftime Podcast, presented by Jeff's Clubhouse. Check out the Bud Light Morning Rush podcast at hitthatline.com.